2: You're listening to Forgotten Dynasty, an oral history of the Baltimore Colts. Written and produced by me, Jake Luke, this podcast is presented by SB Nation's Baltimore Beatdown as a Baltimore Beatdown podcast limited series. Constructed through thorough research and one-on-one interviews, much of what you are about to hear will be cited in the show's description. Special thanks to Jack Gildon, Bill Curry, and Keith Mills for their time and to NFL Films, NFL Network, ESPN, and others for the supplemental audio that you'll hear. This podcast is dedicated to the city of Baltimore, its great sports fans, and to the memory of Chris Wessling, who inspired me to see the world of sports in a more unique way. Episode 2, Thoroughbreds What's the defining image of the 1960s to you? The Kennedy assassination? The Vietnam War? Long-haired hippies? The Doors? The moon landing? All of that? Yeah, me too. All of that and more, in fact. Because if the 50s are too often neatly summed up as a post-war suburban onset boom time, the facade of all that cracking and spilling over into the next decade that came after it is probably too much to sum up with a chapter in a history book, a Jim Morrison lyric, or even an entire TV series, although Mad Men did give it a pretty damn good shot to their credit. And it also can't be summed up by a podcast host in one word, though, of course, I'm going to try. The word I would use is change. Chapter 3. The Rising Tide Old World Dwight D. Eisenhower and his preferred successor, Richard Nixon, gave way to young and fresh John Kennedy in the 1961 election. The civil rights movement began to pick up serious steam and find a culmination point of sorts, and the first young generation that had grown up in a suburban United States that we now recognize began to rebel. A number of different tides began to rise, all forming into a cultural and political tsunami that would make the 1960s one of the most important and formative decades the United States has ever seen. The 1950s were a triumphant decade for pro football in Baltimore. In the span of that decade, they were given a new team under ownership of one of their own. That team had gone on to cultivate multiple stars who led them to multiple championships, and it was through the leadership of those stars that they were poised to enter the 1960s as the premier NFL franchise. All just as Carol Rosenblum had drawn it up. It was in 1959, though, the figure, who was crucial to the Colts coming to Baltimore and to the NFL at large, passed away suddenly. Burt Bell, Carroll's old friend from the University of Pennsylvania, who pressured him into taking on the challenge of bringing an NFL team to Baltimore, was doing the thing that he loved the most when he died, watching football. Perhaps in a streak of cosmic justice, it happened when the team he loved the most, the Eagles, scored a game-winning touchdown against a team he also had affection for, the Steelers in the fourth quarter of a game that he was seated in the end zone for, in Philly's Franklin Field. At age 64 and not in the best of health, he suffered a fatal heart attack and was pronounced dead after being rushed to the hospital. He was eulogized as someone who was, quote, a man of buoyant joviality, with a rough and ready wit, laughter and genuine humility and honesty, clearly innocence of pretense and pretension. From all the context clues on Bell and doing research on him, I found that to be a pretty accurate assessment. Maybe I'm biased in that opinion because of the work he did to bring football to my hometown, but there's a lot of great things he should be remembered for, namely the transformation of pro football into a viable product that began to take shape as a major player on the American landscape by the time of his passing. His work in that field was so strong, in fact, that as the 50s were coming to a close, something happened to the NFL that often only occurs when you make it to the proverbial top. A new challenger appeared. As we've already discussed with the AAFC, among others, the NFL wasn't the first or only professional football league to ever exist. It just was, and of course still is, the only one that's had true staying power. That's a testament to the smarts of people like Burt Bell, who by the time of his passing had already begun to make preparations to step down as NFL commissioner after a successful decade-plus in the position. His plan was to reassume control of the Eagles, the team he had founded 30-odd years prior, and live out his twilight years seeing them through to prosperity. He of course never got to do so, just as he never got to see the result of something else that had been germinating in his last days, the beginnings of a new league that would truly rival the NFL for the next decade to come. The American Football League is a name you may have heard for a variety of reasons. The chief among them is that we now know it to be the American Football Conference, or AFC. But there was a time, The 1960s, to be specific, that it was just the next league in line to try and challenge the NFL, just as the AAFC did a few decades prior. It was formed by the desire of an existing NFL franchise, the Chicago Cardinals, and their ownership group led by the Bidwill family, seeking a move out of the shadow of the more prominent Bears and into a new market in the late 50s. Needing cash to potentially make this happen, the Bidwills enlisted the help of several different potential investors, one of whom was a name you may recognize. Lamar Hunt. He's the namesake for the trophy that to this day is awarded to the AFC champion, and that's because he played a large part in helping form the league that, spoiler alert, would eventually become the conference. Hunt and his investor group, rather than simply put some money into the Chicago Cardinals, sought to buy them from the bidwills. These overtures were rejected, but it was from those dealings that he got the idea to start an entirely new football league. His inspiration to do so partially came from watching the Baltimore Colts defeat the New York Giants in the 58 championship game, where he saw the potential of the sport as a major national TV product. Citing the fact that Major League Baseball operated with two separate leagues, he rounded together five other investors to create franchises that would join the one that he would own, a number that would eventually grow to eight in total by the time the league kicked off. It did so on the night of Friday, September 9th, 1960, on ABC – which the brand-new league had negotiated a five-year TV contract with. Those eight aforementioned teams were the Boston Patriots, the Buffalo Bills, the Denver Broncos, the Houston Oilers, the Los Angeles Chargers, the New York Titans, the Oakland Raiders, and the team that Hunt owned, the Dallas Texans. For clarity's sake, this was a brand-new Dallas Texans franchise that Hunt founded, having nothing to do with the one that eventually became the Colts a decade ago. No, it was an entirely new franchise, as were the other seven names I just mentioned to you, some of which should sound familiar. Within the next few years, the Chargers would move to San Diego, where they would remain for over half a century. The New York Titans would eventually come into new ownership, who renamed them as the Jets, and Hunt would actually move the Texans from Dallas to get away from a market that had just added an NFL expansion franchise called the Cowboys. He moved his club to Kansas City and renamed them the Chiefs, The early 60s was all about growth for the AFL, where they were a relatively strong operation for a new league, but not yet up to snuff with the NFL. It was during this time period that Burt Bell's successor, a man named Pete Rozelle, took over as NFL commissioner in 1960, and was unsure of what to make of this nascent league in the AFL that would be competing with his own. Rozelle took the position as a precocious 33-year-old, following a successful stint as the LA Rams general manager, and quickly proved himself to be a capable replacement for Bell. Some of his initial moves included figuring out profit sharing for gate and TV revenues that leveled the playing field for smaller market teams, as well as negotiating blanket TV contracts for the entire league to fully bring the league into the television era on a weekly basis. Lamar Hunt's initial discussions with Burt Bell regarding starting a new league had been pretty positive, and the then-commissioner didn't seem to mind the idea of a new league at all. With Roselle and some of the owners, though, the relationship throughout the early 1960s wasn't as smooth. Some of this had to do with prestige, as the AFL quickly proved that it didn't need the help of the NFL to succeed, eventually parlaying their first few years into a second TV contract, this time with NBC, worth $36 million in 1965. This was a sign of the league's growing strength and financial solvency, something that allowed them to begin to truly take on the NFL, much to the chagrin of Roselle and the ownership base. They did so by smartly attacking the NFL at one of its core strengths young, Marketable Players The AFL had been holding a draft annually since its inception in 1960, but by 1965 it was a true competitor to the NFL draft. In many instances, young star college players could be drafted by both leagues and then have a decision to make on which one they wanted to play in. Increased revenue for the AFL led to more money up front for these younger players, which naturally made it a bit of a harder decision than it had once been. Go with the stable and more prestigious NFL, or take more cash up front and go hack it in the AFL in the hopes that it'll start to take off. This was the case for one young player out of the University of Alabama. A quarterback with a swoop of dark hair, a warm all-shuck smile, and a charismatic Southern drawl to match, Joseph William Namath, known as Joe Willie by his close friends, was a top college football prospect, leaving the ranks of Bear Bryant's Crimson Tide to try and make a go of it in pro football in 1965. He was selected 12th overall by the aforementioned Chicago Cardinals in the NFL Draft that year. But as luck would have it for him, they wouldn't be the only ball club vying for his services. He said, you have any idea what
3: you're going to ask? And I said, well, yes, sir, I was thinking about $100,000. Coach Bryant, you know, he thought a minute, took a little draw off that cigarette of his. Said, you go ahead and ask him for $200,000. That's a better place to start.
2: Namath's coach and mentor and Bear Bryant knew the worth of his young star, and he told Joe to know it himself when he was doing his dealings with the Chicago Cardinals. Oh no! This is crazy. Two hundred thousand dollars—they're going back and forth waving it. And
3: I had forgotten to mention the new car, and a new car. Two hundred thousand dollars and a new car. See, so, yeah. And then one of them said, "What kind of car?" My, a Lincoln Continental convertible. Oh sure, a Lincoln Continental convertible. Yeah, the boy wants a Lincoln Continental. Made an issue out of it. 30 or 40 seconds later, they got papers in their hands. All right, well, let's sign here. Let's sign there. And I said, wait a minute. Uh, I haven't even talked to the New York
2: Jets yet. The Jets had selected Joe first overall in the 1965 AFL draft. And thanks to their willingness to pony up to his demands and the clear business acumen of the club's new owner, Sonny Werblin, and the market potential of a place like New York City, versus a place like Chicago or St. Louis, ultimately set young Joe Willie up on the path to becoming Broadway Joe with Gang Green. He signed with them for a then-record three-year, $427,000 deal, and officially became the new face of the AFL. Young, marketable, and most of all talented, players like him choosing the AFL truly legitimized them as a league, and as a competitor to Roselle's NFL in the mid-60s. It wasn't just player talent that made the move to the new league, though. Awaiting Joe in New York in 1965 was a head coach who had spent the last two years beginning the process of building the Jets up in his image, sticking to a similar plan that had helped him achieve success in the NFL. That coach was Weeb Eubank, who after being fired by Baltimore following the 1962 season, was hired by New York to build up the Jets into a consistently successful franchise as he did in Baltimore with the Colts. His first few years were rough in New York, with the Jets posting a 5-8-1 record in 1963 and 1964, but ahead of 65, he landed his next Johnny U in Joe Namath. For many reasons, this would prove to be a massive development for the sport of football and, of course, the Colts. The firing of Eubank put the typically strong and stable Colts in an unfamiliar position ahead of the 1963 NFL season. For the first time since bringing Weeb on board almost a decade prior, Carol Rosenblum was in the market for a new head coach. These days, the idea of hiring a young, energetic option to lead your franchise versus a more stabilizing veteran coach has become something of a norm in the post-Sean McVeigh era, but prior to his hiring in 2017, bringing on a coach under the age of 40 was relatively unheard of save for a few outliers here and there that quickly flamed out. That was just four years ago. Now imagine that the clock had just turned to 1963, and you're a diehard Colts fan who had just watched your team have unprecedented success under 56-year-old Weeb Eubank, and his replacement is a 33-year-old whose name you recognize from his days as a relatively insignificant player on the back half of the Colts roster from a few years ago. Sounds fairly unconventional, right? Well, Carol Rosenblum was an unconventional owner and Don Shula didn't rise through the ranks of football coaching from such a young age by listening to the critics either. If he had, he may have given up on the sport when it became clear to him that his days as a player were numbered. When Shula's name first came across Rosenblum's desk as a potential head coaching candidate at the suggestion of Colts defensive end Gino Marchetti, it was pretty clear that even Carroll would need to be sold on him at that point.
0: It's, it's, the Shula story is a fascinating one because... It begins as a player, and he wasn't
2: cool as a player.
0: He was so inconsequential in in, uh, in Rosenblum's mind that when Marchetti brought him up as a possible replacement for, for Weed, did, or, uh, Rosenblum didn't even remember that Shula had played for the Colts. And, and then he said, well, wait a minute. He said, "You not that, that guy who played here for a few years, he wasn't very good? That was how he responded to Marchetti. Marchetti said, that's the one. You know, so Shula was a player here. And uh, he was scrappy and smart. He pulled all the defensive plays uh, in the huddle while he was here, so it was kind of like the captain. I I think Marchetti was really the captain, but Shula was kind of like the captain because he was so smart.
2: It didn't ultimately take much to convince him, though, because while Shula's athletic ability limited him as a professional player, it was his wits and his eye for the game that kept him in a uniform a few years longer than he should have been. Those same smarts and intangibles that he had always relied upon, plus uncanny leadership abilities for someone his age, made him nothing short of a prodigy as a coach. Bill Curry played for the Colts under Shula for three seasons, and over 50 years later, he still recalls his first impressions of Coach Shula in vivid detail, including, funny enough, an argument between the two of them in the wake of Bill getting penalized for clipping in some of his first action for the Colts.
1: You asked me how I got introduced to Shula this was my introduction. He ran on the field, grabbed me by the shoulder pad, shook me, and screamed some things that would have made Lombardi proud. <laughs> and, well, the NFL is not a place for nice guys, and I certainly was not a nice guy in the moment. And it didn't matter to me if that was the head coach or not, because I didn't think I had clipped. Um, I screamed right back with the same kind of language. So Tuesday, we're watching the films and the assistant coach said, Curry, is that a clip? I said, well, it might be. (laughs) He said, well, let me make a suggestion. The next time you decide to dog cuss the head coach on national television, you make damn sure it's not a clip. You understand? I said, oh, gee, I'm going to have a one-game career with Don Shula and I've got got our baby flying in with Carol, and I'm going to, have to pack him up and drive him home. So I went and found Shua. He took me back in the equipment room, and I immediately apologized. I said, Coach, I was out of line. I will never do that again. I promise. And you know what he said? He smiled. He said, I kind of like that. Just don't clip the guy. <laughs> now, you think we played hard for him? We played our guts out for him. And then as I tried to play one position after another, I, I wanted to play linebacker. I wasn't good enough. And by the way, my linebacker coach was Chuck Noll. If you can't play under Chuck Noll, you better change positions. So I thought Coach Shula again. I thought he would cut me, but he wrote me a letter, said I'm going to move you back to center, and we're going to find a way to get some football out of you. And that was the that was the real that was what I needed for my career to uh, ended up being a ten year career, and I owe it to Shula. Uh, I'll never forget those moments.
2: While his leadership and his personal skills were prodigious, as is pretty clear, all it took for Rosenblum to begin seriously considering him was a quick glance at his coaching resume. His rapid movement through the college ranks, including a stint under Blanton Collier at Kentucky, who Carroll had an affinity for, plus what he had just done in a few short years in Detroit as a defensive coordinator, was more than enough to get him hired on merit alone.
0: So in those three, he was defensive coordinator for Detroit, I think three, three seasons, and in that time... I mean, Lombardi struggled against him. Lombardi's offense was a machine that, that plowed through the rest of the league, where he could barely move the ball against Shula's defense. And I think uh, Shula, I think the six games they had against United and the Colts, I think they won the majority of those, and he really shut down the Colts' offense in those games. So even though it seemed, again, it seemed like Shula had emerged out of nowhere, he'd never been a head coach or anything, but he was the one assistant coach that was handling both the packers and the colts when nobody else in football could so he he you know he was not a nobody like you know like people claim oh he was the youngest coach in history you know there were solid reasons why they chose him i mean he was really putting it together there
2: in in, uh, in detroit for all the brilliant moments that weeb eubank brought to baltimore in his tenure there was no doubt that a few mediocre seasons in a row had brought some malaise to charm city's football club as the 60s began and the polish and pedigree of a guy like Shula would, at the very least, reinvigorate a franchise that had allowed some staleness to sneak into how they had been doing things. But even an exciting hire like him was bound to face some challenges from the get go. And in his case, his age did work against him a bit when he was trying to instill his culture, something he personally looks back on in NFL Network's A Football Life. All right, okay,
3: great. Nice, Sam. You had that Stick face right in his mustache. Stick Good job. Out. That's it, low and hard. All right, turn it on now, Jerry. When you get through, turn it on. I think the toughest thing that I had to deal with was standing in front of the group and telling them what my plan was and then to know that some of the players that were out there were much better players than I ever thought about being. So I had to, you know, win them over. We started out, we had some great licks hit. This is what we want to see. Great by the
2: defense, great by the offense. His age and, in the case of some of the players he was trying to get through to, his history with the Colts franchise. A history that, as we know, was somewhat checkered. Don Shula was not what you would call a bad football player over the course of his career, but he was a fringe guy, a lunch pail-type player, who got by on his smarts, something that may today be described as a, quote, coach's son. While Shula wasn't actually a coach's son, he was a coach on the field when he played for the Colts. And while that was perfectly fine for much of his career, it caught up to him hard when he had to face off against players like Johnny Unitas and Raymond Barry in practice, guys who paved the way for the new era of the superstar football player, an era that left players like Shula largely in the dust. He didn't go quietly into the night as a player, trying to stick it out and make it work in Washington, but ultimately it wasn't meant to be. He took that trademark fire and determination with him into his coaching career, and it helped him along his route towards becoming the youngest head coach in NFL history at the time. But through all of his abilities as a coach, both from a chalkboard and a leadership perspective, some of the cult players who played with him and remembered going up against him when he was wearing the white and blue uniforms weren't able to get past the fact that in those days he couldn't hack it with them. And now they were supposed to take orders from him. Good results on the field quickly disabused many of the players of the notion that Shula didn't deserve their respect because of that. But there was one player in particular that it seemed to remain an issue with, both at the time of Shula's hiring and for many years after the fact. That player was Johnny Unitas.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I remember.
2: I was in the huddle, and Shula would send
1: a play in. And um, this was in practice. I don't remember it happening in the game. It might have happened. But the guy runs in the huddle with a play and United says, yeah, get your ass back on the sideline. I don't need a play. I call the plays here. And he would do that. And, of course, with the, when the head coach, when the guy ran back over there and told Shula, and you know, we'd watch Shula's face and, wow. So there was some of that, not much, but occasionally that.
2: That anecdote immediately sprung to Bill Curry's mind when the discussion on Unitas and Shula's issues began, and it makes sense. Open insubordination from a player to a coach isn't something you see too often in the NFL these days, and from the way Bill tells it, it probably wasn't especially common back in those days either. Also bear in mind that Bill didn't actually join the Colts until 1967. By the time he had entered the picture, the issues between the two of them had likely been festering for years. And that encounter was just a microcosm of the way their relationship up to that point had developed, or failed to develop, depending on how you look at it. Despite the strain, though, the two of them proved to be a pretty dynamic duo, at least between the time the first and last whistle blew on Sundays. Shula's first season in Baltimore, 1963, was a building block of a year in which the team posted an 8-6 record, good for third in the NFL's Western Conference behind the Green Bay Packers and Chicago Bears. But it was in 1964 that it all, or at least mostly all, seemed to come together for Don Shula and the Baltimore Colts. A 12-2 regular season finish that included an 11-game winning streak and a second MVP award for Johnny Unitas was good enough to get Baltimore back to the NFL championship game for the first time since 1959. The Colts were back at the top of the heap where they felt they belonged as a purebred franchise, but they were matched up against an equally prestigious club in the championship game, the Cleveland Browns, a team they had taken a lot of their cues from. By virtue of it being the Eastern Conference's turn to host that year, the Browns were seven point home underdogs to Shula and the Colts, and all the punditry seemed to point to Baltimore as the likely team to take home the 64 title that year. But as we know, football isn't played on paper. And after a second-half surge by Cleveland, the Colts were shut out in a shocking 27-0 loss. That was a tough one to take on the chin for Shula, who would have liked to get off on the right foot in Baltimore. To some, an appearance in a championship game after two seasons in which you compiled 20 wins versus 8 losses would seem like a great start. But Baltimore expected better. They had gotten used to their team showing up on the big stage, not wilting when they got there. Their quarterback had done as much in 1958 when he invented the concept of calling his own plays on the fly and winning as a result. In 64, he was still getting used to the idea of taking his play-calling cues from someone else, and clearly never actually even warmed up to the idea of it in the first place. And their owner, above all else, didn't like to lose. By the 1960s, Carroll Rosenblum's profile had risen, and he was a high roller amidst the world of sports ownership. He was a naturally successful person who inherently hated to lose, and the bigger the game, the worse the hatred got. As Carroll began to spend more time in New York and Florida with other owners and people of stature in the sports world, he came to see the Colts as a point of pride amongst those circles. Big wins meant the chance to gloat to his high-roller buddies, while a tough loss meant he'd have to take it on the chin. This also may have been a sticking point for Rosenblum as a sporting man who, allegedly, liked to lay the occasional bet, While he never spoke on it publicly, Carroll is rumored to have bet on the Colts in games at times, and while he never let his gambling directly influence his moves or get in the way of the reputation he had built as a classy and strong owner, it stands to reason that it could have affected his mood in regards to the team at times. Carroll's son Steve recalls that 1964 championship loss as one that really stung for his father.
3: That was a uh, crushing defeat, and my father did not like to lose. Nobody likes to lose, but... He liked it least.
2: Inside of you, outside, outside of you. Why? don't get, get, wide. Don't get back From the outside looking in, you're talking about an extremely solid start from Shula. But for the same reason the Colts had been so successful in the 1950s, the start was anything but solid from his perspective. A headstrong Uber competitor at quarterback who he had a checkered history with and an owner who had only known success in his life, including in his football endeavors, had set an incredibly high standard for him from day one. Alas, it was a good problem to have, to be fair, and as he would go on to prove for the rest of his life in many ways, Don Shula wasn't one to back down from a challenge. This is something that became abundantly clear the next year, amidst the 1965 season. The Colts were again strong in the regular season that year, finishing with a 10-3-1 record good for a tie with Green Bay at the top of the Western Conference. That meant that the two teams would have to meet in a playoff game to decide who would represent the conference in the NFL championship game. Vince Lombardi versus Don Shula for a shot at making it to the championship sounds as classic as it gets, but for many different reasons, this game was really just unusual from start to finish. The first, and certainly most germane one to the conversation about Shula's ingenuity against unique challenges, was that the Colts were forced to play the game without a quarterback. Or at least anyone who had played the position since college. Late season injuries to Johnny Unitas and his backup Gary Kowtsoe left little time for the Colts to get a capable veteran quarterback in the building at the time to finish out the season, and in a stroke of maybe not brilliance, but ingenuity, Shula turned to one of his offensive veterans to take the reins at the position. Fifth-year halfback Tom Maddy got the call, thanks in part to his history as an option quarterback at Ohio State, and Shula drew up a short wristband of plays for him to use during the game. Speaking on the experience in 2005, Maddy recalls his preparation being a bit of a blur. I had to learn so much offense that I didn't even have time to be nervous, he said. I remember that we walked through the plays in the ballroom of our hotel in Green Bay. The goal on offense was to simplify things to the point that they could just focus on getting first downs and keep the clock moving, and the game tight enough to maybe steal a win. It nearly worked, and if you're a believer in the football gods, you'll see this as a game in which they were certainly not on the side of the talent strapped Colts. Armed with his wristband of plays and enough athleticism to keep Green Bay's defense on its toes. Maddie kept Baltimore moving and the scoreboard close. Late in the game, the Colts had built a 10-7 lead, and Green Bay was facing a field goal to force overtime. Packers kicker Don Chandler's attempt appeared to be no good, and even upon the rewind today, that seems to be pretty obvious. But for whatever reason, the referee saw it differently, something Tom Maddie doesn't recall especially fondly.
0: Chandler kicks it, looks
2: at it, kicks the ground, and walks off the field. And Jim Tunney goes like this and says it's good. We almost died. I mean, we could not believe that he did that. The game went to overtime and the Colts ultimately lost and were sent packing in a big game for the second year in a row. Baltimore fans greeted them warmly at their return at Friendship Airport and a throng of them lifted Maddie onto their shoulders as a sign of respect for leaving it all in the field. The experience is one that stayed with Maddie for the entirety of his life since. When the Denver Broncos were forced to turn to wide receiver Kendall Hinton in the 2020 season as a result of COVID issues in their QB room, Matty reached out to Hinton after his performance to let him know that he was proud of him for being there for his teammates amidst a tough situation. The wristband Matty wore in the game is now on display in the Hall of Fame. It's an heirloom he's proud of and an important piece of NFL history. In fact, it's now cited as the first documented example of a quarterback wearing a play sheet on their wrist which is of course commonplace these days. Unfortunately for Shula, though, it's just another totem of his misfortune in those days, the sign of a great idea that almost, and in this case really should have, worked for him, but ultimately didn't. But while it may not have been enough to earn the admiration of Unitas, and he had the impatient Carol Rosenblum eager for championships watching him in the owner's box, the loss to the Packers in 1965 was maybe the first example you can find of Shula's unconventional genius on display. Genius mixed with a good judge of character and toughness of his players that ensured he knew how to attack different situations and who he should be attacking it with. Something Bill Curry confirmed to be the case, even citing his own personal experience.
1: If he ever saw something in you, and I'm sure he watched every snap in practice, he knew when he put us through those training camps, uh, he knew who would quit and who wouldn't. And I think if he ever got it in your mind that you were not a quitter, that you were going to suck it up and go no matter what, I think if he ever got that fixed in his mind, he was going to find a way to use you on his team and give you a chance, maybe when you didn't feel like you deserved it. That's what he did for me. He just kept giving me one chance after another. Middle linebacker, outside linebacker, not good enough. Okay, I thought, well, he'll cut me now. No. I move back to center. In those days, the centers weren't 300 pounds. we were more like 240, so I could I could play one or the other and move back. And I had played both in college. And he knew that. So uh, when he put me back at center, um, he called me in in 68, and he said, okay, now you're going to play center, and we're going to rest you one quarter of each game because we want you to stay on special teams because I could cover kickoffs and cover punts and play on the kickoff return team. And I said, Coach, that'll be fine. You can play me every snap and I'll stay on special teams. He said, no, we, we don't, we don't want to wear you out. So he was always thinking of combinations
2: like that. I don't know any other coach that ever. It was well established after those first two years that Shula definitely was a good coach and that Rosenblum had been right to gamble on him despite his young age. And even though he and Unitas didn't seem to have the best of chemistry, the quarterback had won an MVP playing under Shula, even if he wasn't necessarily playing for him. Still, a ring to legitimize his start as the hottest young coach the NFL had ever seen up to that point eluded him, and would continue to do so for the next few years. In 1966, they again had a solid showing in the regular season, finishing 9-5, but were second in the Western Conference to Vince Lombardi's Packers, who finished 12-2, leaving them on the outside of the championship looking in yet again. 66 was a notable year to miss out on, as the rise in prominence of the AFL led to a new bowl game played between the two different leagues champions, known at the time as the first AFL NFL World Championship game. That's not exactly a name that rolls off the tongue, and a much catchier one quickly replaced it. More on that in a little bit. 1967 was no better to Shula than the Colts, and is one of the more bizarre stories for a team in NFL history that you can find. Over the course of the first 13 weeks of the 67 season, the Colts went 11-0-2, and, and were arguably the class of the league entering the final week. They were matched up against a strong LA Rams squad who were 10-1-2 entering the game, though the Colts were favored to get it done and advance to the 67 playoffs, the first year that the NFL implemented a 14 team playoff format as opposed to just one championship game. Remarkably, Johnny Unitas, who would go on to win a third, and ultimately final, MVP award that year, threw two interceptions against the Rams, and the Colts lost the game 34-10. to It was a colossal failure for a team who was quickly getting all too used to them. Jack Elden sums up the Colts' failures and big moments over those years in the 60s as something that stemmed from many different factors, including level of competition and bad luck. But he also posits that the frayed relationship between coach and quarterback was likely a contributing factor in their inability to get over the hump up to that point.
0: It's, it's, it's amazing what they what they were accomplishing, but they ran into a lot of, you know, bad luck. And maybe, maybe the chemistry between the coach and the quarterback was, was a factor and, you know, by millimeters in them winning or not winning the championship, the, the, the level of competition was so high. The bears were so good. The Packers were so good. Uh, even New York and Cleveland and the other division, which was less, a lesser division, they were damn good teams with damn good coaches. Huge star players, I mean, th- your margin for, for uh, mistake was, was tiny, you know, but the Colts were the, were the biggest winner of the decade in terms of re- regular season. And, uh, you know, so th- that chemistry between those two, it might have been the millimeter of difference that
2: kept them from winning, winning titles. By 1967, Bill Curry was on the Colts roster and firmly in the mix between the two playing as center for Unitas and a guy who Don Shula seemed to have a lot of belief in. Referring back to their encounter when Unitas shrugged off one of Shula's attempts to send a play into the huddle, Curry went on to say that he thought the issues between the two men either don't exist like some seem to think, or were kept behind closed doors most of the time. I think it's overblown. I don't, I don't think it's as big a deal as people are
1: making it, um, But um, because I, I was right there. I mean, I was standing there sweating bullets like everybody else in that very huddle. And I think I would have noticed it, and Shu would come stick his head in the huddle. And maybe they had it out behind closed doors. They were both private men and great warriors and great winners. Um, and, and they knew they had a lot at stake, each competing with and for the other. I don't think they would have ever let it be public between where, where the rest of us could see it all the time. And they didn't. But I did see once or twice. Um, where he didn't
2: like having place. But he does at one point make an analogy for the two of them and their complex relationship. It's pretty striking and makes a ton of sense.
1: Years later, many years later, uh, we coached at Kentucky. And Kentucky has this obvious history with thoroughbred horses, uh, the fastest creatures in the world for one mile, the most beautiful creatures on the run, anywhere. And my wife Carolyn and I bought a house in the middle of one of the horse farms and they had quarantine barns and they had paddocks, big paddocks, and they would only have one thoroughbred per paddock. So I asked the owner, Jimmy Bell, who's a friend of mine, I said, what's the deal? You're wasting all this. It seemed like you're wasting space. You only got one horse out here in this big old paddock. He said, Are you kidding? If we put two of them in the same paddock, these thoroughbreds, they'd kill each other in a day. Because they're born competitors and fighters, and they can't they can't countenance one another in very large doses. And I'm not going to tell you that I instantly thought of Shul and Uniteds, but it sort of came to me when people started people like you started asking me about it. You got two thoroughbreds. You got two that are that are the best at what they do. Maybe the best
2: ever at what they do. Uh, They're not going to just get along happily, I don't think. By the end of 1967, Shula and Unitas' issues seemed to run pretty deep. They had their roots on the football field in the mid-50s when Unitas and Barry time and again reminded Shula that he could no longer cut it as a player. Those issues seemed to compound when Shula was then hired to coach Unitas, something that understandably didn't make a ton of sense to the quarterback who had proven himself to be world-class in comparison to the man he was now supposed to take orders from. And they crystallized over those first five years together when Shula, whose star rose and resolve grew thanks to strong coaching efforts in the regular season, couldn't ultimately get it done in the big game, which is all Unitas, Rosenblum, and Baltimore at large really wanted. That's the irony of it all. Shula had an enviable resume by the end of 1967, and would be right in thinking that he deserved respect from those three parties. And in many ways, he got it. But the big game elephant, or in this case, the thoroughbred horse in the room, hung over Shula's head like a cloud. And pretty soon, it was going to be make or break time for the young hotshot coach who had every accolade in the book, but no ring on his finger save for a wedding band. Thankfully for him, those first few difficult years were just the beginning of a long and storied career. But before he would go on to begin to build a foundation for his case to make the Hall of Fame, there were still a few more painful chapters to his story. Among the most painful of them all is what transpired in 1968. Chapter 4 Super Bowl Among the most important figures in the history of the sport of football, many names jump to mind, such as Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, Joe Montana. Vince Lombardi, and Johnny Unitas. Perhaps not coincidentally, head coaches and quarterbacks are prominently featured there. Other names you could throw out there as well would be Jerry Rice, Lawrence Taylor, Ed Reed, Ray Lewis, Rob Gronkowski, all guys who were historically dominant at their positions. One name that you certainly weren't thinking about, though, is a guy who played a position that people already like to denigrate to begin with. Kicker. That kicker's name is Pete Gogolak. No one can blame you if you haven't heard the name before. And even if you have, there's a strong possibility that you just as soon forgot it. That's because his story is a footnote in a much larger one concerning one of the biggest developments in NFL history that took place over the course of the mid to late 1960s. By the mid 60s, the NFL had a full-scale competitor on their hands in the AFL, something the likes of which they simply hadn't seen. Thanks to the shrewd business acumen of AFL owners like Lamar Hunt, Sonny Werblin with the Jets, and a maverick with the Oakland Raiders by the name of Al Davis, the AFL had begun to generate serious revenue through the securing of their TV contracts and many other factors, such as solid gate sales due to them putting on a fun, offensive product in untapped markets, directly contrasting the NFL on purpose in that regard. To capitalize on this, the AFL took their momentum to begin attacking the young players leaving the college ranks with the hopes of turning pro. This is where players like Joe Namath and other young stars were lured to the AFL for a variety of reasons. While the NFL obviously didn't love that the AFL had only recently cropped up and was already creating an issue with the only talent pipeline they had at their disposal, there was little they could do about it. In fact, antitrust suits between the two leagues had cropped up over things such as TV rights and other issues, and while Pete Rosell was quick to handle them, there wasn't much he could do about stopping young players from choosing to play in a different league if the offer was better. Simply put, It was fair game, and the AFL was playing it pretty well. But despite the fact that the two leagues were competing for college talent, and both were actively participating in what was turning into an arms race for some of these young players, there was one thing that both of the leagues had agreed not to do. Or at least there was an unspoken, quote, gentleman's agreement in place that all the ownership groups between both leagues seemed to be well aware of. That agreement was that neither league would pursue a player from the other one once that player had signed into the league. So for example, if a quarterback chose to sign with the AFL following being drafted into it, the idea was for him to play there through his first contract, and even if he decided to become a free agent, that he would only remain within the AFL while still playing pro football. The same unspoken rules would of course be in play vice versa if a guy decided to join the ranks of the NFL. This gentleman's agreement between the two leagues lasted for several years without sign of a breaking point. But pro football is a fickle beast. And many people in charge of such situations often ask themselves the question, what else can I get away with here? One of those people in charge who found themselves asking that in 1966 was New York Giants owner Wellington Mara. It was around that time that the Giants were in need of a kicker, and as luck would have it, a very good one was about to become available. The only problem for them was that he was going to become available in the AFL, per this gentleman's agreement. That kicker was Pete Gogolak a former Hungarian immigrant, who should best be remembered for being excellent at his position, and one of the pioneers of kicking field goals in the European soccer style that we see today, as opposed to the straight-on style that was more commonplace at the time in football. But he's also remembered for something else significant. After building his profile with the AFL's Buffalo Bills, Gogolak engaged in a somewhat drawn-out contract dispute with the Wilson family, the owners of the team. After finally realizing that he wouldn't get the raise he was seeking, Gogolak declined an offer to return to Buffalo with the thought that other AFL teams would come calling to sign for his services, which, based on his resume, likely were worth seeking out. But that didn't happen. Not in the AFL, anyway. Wellington Mara and the Giants knew all about the handshake agreement not to sign AFL players, but with a need at the position and with Gogolak sitting out there available to be signed for months, they decided to ignore it in this case. The NFL and the Giants called, Gogolak said many years later. I signed with the Giants and made three times as much as I made with the Bills. I signed for $35,000. They gave me a four-year, no-cut contract. In April of 1966, Raiders owner Al Davis was appointed to the role of commissioner of the AFL with the express purpose of taking on the NFL if and when an all-out war started with them. If you know literally anything about Davis, you won't be shocked to hear that he and the rest of the AFL owners seem to see the Giants move to sign Gogolak as the first shot in a war that had been simmering beneath the surface of the AFL and NFL's relationship. Davis being Davis, immediately moved to up the ante in that bidding war that the Gogolak signing had tacitly created, lining up contract offers for several established NFL stars, including Mike Ditka, for example. Davis and the AFL were ready to mobilize, but seeking to stop the proceedings before they became a major issue for either side of the aisle, NFL executives stepped in. Specifically, Tech Schramm the Dallas Cowboys general manager at the time, met with a group of AFL owners led by Lamar Hunt to ask if they would be interested in negotiating a merger for the two leagues. These talks were initiated without the express consent of Pete Rosell, though he retroactively gave them his blessing as he saw the upside of a merger and was happy to get it done. Perhaps sensing that Al Davis wouldn't be so keen to kiss the ring of the NFL, nobody within the AFL contingent bothered to inform their commissioner that the proceedings were going on. Regardless, an agreement was ultimately reached, and on the evening of June 8, 1966, the merger was officially announced. As it was probably the largest interleague merger that sports had ever seen up to that point, there were many details that had to be hammered out, including that the two leagues would form together officially under NFL leadership to an expanded number of 24 teams to increase up to 28 by 1970, all existing franchises were to remain in place, and financial aid would be dished around to those organizations that would need it. Both leagues would hold one common draft, so there would be no more competing for college players, and that the two leagues would play out four more seasons separately, before officially merging together in 1970 as the National Football League. Al Davis, predictably furious that he was left out of negotiations, resigned from his post and returned to the Raiders, ensuring that Pete Rozelle would be the unquestioned commissioner of the new league. It's a lot of information to process even now, and that's just scratching the surface of the details of the agreement. It wasn't bound to be the smoothest ride for the AFL and NFL towards officially becoming one entity in 1970, but there were several elements of the deal that would help make the transition a bit more of a natural one over the next four years. That included interleague preseason games, in office of the AFL president to help continue their operations over those few years, and other elements of a typical sports merger. But naturally, the question arose about what to do between the two leagues in the meantime. To help promote the upcoming merger, interleague preseason exhibition games were scheduled, and marketing began to ramp up to help promote the coming together of the two entities. But also a part of the merger agreement was getting a head start on establishing a championship game that would settle things at the end of the season between the two leagues, and they didn't even have to wait until the completion of the merger in 1970 to make it official. Written into the agreement was that after the AFL and NFL each played their individual championship games, that a new one would be played at the end of the year, starting that coming season in 1966, to determine the overall champion between the two of them. It was dubbed the AFL-NFL World Championship Game, and even after being put in place ahead of the 66th season, uncertainty followed its scheduling, clunky name, and location hung with it throughout the year. Despite the issues, the first installment went on as initially planned. On January 15, 1967, at Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, the AFL champion was Lamar Hunt's Kansas City Chiefs, who entered the game as significant 14-point underdogs to the blue-blooded Green Bay Packers, still well within the heyday of the great Vince Lombardi, a team who had traded haymakers with the Colts throughout the 60s at different points. An audience of 60,000-plus flocked to the Coliseum with an additional 51 million people tuning into the TV broadcast, a simulcast split between CBS and NBC, who each had their own individual contracts with the two different leagues, and as such were both allowed to air it on their networks. Those who attended and tuned in likely knew they were witnessing history to an extent, and this represented the first concrete step towards a merger between two strong leagues who also had a history of some bad blood between them. They also had probably entered the game with low expectations from a competition standpoint, because as much as the AFL had proven itself to be a worthy thorn in the side of the NFL, the conventional wisdom was that the original league, with its rich history and its list of rugged superstars that ran exceptionally deep, was still well superior to the AFL. This was proven to be the case on that day, as Lombardi's Green Bay team ran roughshod over head coach Hank Stram's Kansas City outfit and route to a 35-10 victory culminating in Bart Starr taking home the award for game MVP. It would become a familiar sight for football fans who were getting used to this new format. The next year, 1967, the Packers again returned to the game, after being NFL champions, this time facing off against the AFL champion Oakland Raiders, the team of former AFL commissioner Al Davis. Again, the game proved not to be especially competitive, as the Packers rolled to a 33-14 victory in front of a crowd of 75,000 at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Bart Starr again took MVP honors, and after being favored by 13.5 and comfortably covering, the Packers were proving to be a dynasty to be feared as the new era of pro football was on the horizon, and their early dominance over the AFL in the new championship game began to reinforce the already widely held belief that the NFL was the tried and true superior league between the two. The belief was that over time, the game would become more competitive, as the AFL would need many more years to continue to grow in strength and become a true challenger. The expectation quickly became that through the first several years of the installments was that the game would be simply a formality, in which the NFL would show up each year and claim their crown as AFL-NFL World Champions. Looking back on it, the original name for the game was exceptionally clunky, if pragmatic for what it represented. It didn't take long to change though, thankfully, and it's apparently a credit to Lamar Hunt that it eventually did. Bowl was a popular piece of nomenclature that had started to signify big games in college football, and over the first few years following the merger, Hunt took that, combined with the name of a toy that his kids had grown fond of, the Super Bowl, to start half-jokingly referring to the World Championship as the name that it's still called to this day. Early documentation following the merger in 1966 has Hunt writing a letter to Pete Rozelle which contains this excerpt. I have kiddingly called it the, quote, Super Bowl which obviously can be improved upon. Either Hunt was faking humility over a clean and simple but still grand and evocative title that clearly fit the billing of a big event, or he legitimately thought that a game of that magnitude shouldn't derive its name from a kid's toy. Either way, it worked to the point that it stuck, as we obviously know now. That began in 1968, when it officially took on that title ahead of what would be its third installment. Its third, and up to that point, most important. To this day, it's still one of the most famous, or infamous, depending on who you ask, games in NFL history, setting a new standard for what pro football could be and what things would potentially look like in a star-driven league in a post-merger world. The NFL would send one of its finest blue-blooded franchises to represent them in a game that was expected to be the biggest blowout yet in their favor, while the AFL would be represented by a team of a cast-off NFL coach and a young prodigy at quarterback that was known as much for shooting his mouth off as he was for firing touchdown passes. That wouldn't prove itself to be any different in the run-up to Super Bowl III, but when Joe Namath declared a guaranteed victory over the Baltimore Colts, it still sent some shockwaves through a football media sphere that had come to understand NFL quarterbacks to be clean-cut family men who kept their mouths shut and the BS to a minimum. As they would quickly learn through the end of the 60s and with the result of that game, the world at large was changing, and the sport of football was no different. 1968 is often looked back upon as one of the most turbulent years of the 20th century in the United States. Throughout much of the decade, while Dong Shula and the rest of his counterparts were battling it out on the gridiron, the United States had been waging a very real and very costly war across the Pacific Ocean in Vietnam. Things intensified year over year, and especially so in January of 68, when combined Vietnamese forces launched the Tet Offensive, a massive pushback against U.S. insurgency, that led to huge casualties, and further questions about why the war was even happening in the first place. Back stateside, things weren't much better, as renowned civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, a landmark moment in the fight against segregation that led to massive rioting across the country, including in Baltimore, where multiple neighborhoods went up in flames. The National Guard was called in, and six were reported dead, with an additional 700 or so injured. Throughout the remainder of the year, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in June, Young anti-war protesters clashed with police at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in an infamous riot, and the Zodiac Killer claimed his first victims in December. All of that is simply scratching the surface of what was a watershed year in the U.S. and illustrates the point that the country was tangibly changing. A few decades prior, it and its citizens were in the throes of a two-front war against tyranny that people could get behind, and victory in it led to an era of suburban prosperity, that seemed to be a ringing endorsement of old-world conservative values. But that decadence gave way to malaise, and as the facade began to crack throughout the 60s via a war in Vietnam that was being fought for nebulous reasons, civil rights movements that began to expose the idea that things weren't as idyllic for everyone as we might have liked to believe, and new revolutionary music began sweeping the nation, young people began to change as well. Like the Beatles, The Doors, and many of the other counter-cultural musical acts that began to rise in prominence in that decade, Young men began to grow their hair out, women began to embrace their feminine identities, and recreational drug use became fairly common. These days, none of that sounds crazy at all, but for a generation that was raised on the idea of the tranquil nuclear family who found purpose in their work and their faith, it was a far cry from what their parents had been expecting for them. But change is an inevitability, and sometimes the better things get when you're up, the worse they're going to be on the way down. Under the tutelage of the inventive Don Shula and the rock-solid Johnny Unitas, the Baltimore Colts still believed themselves to be up as 1968 rolled around, but things were indeed beginning to look tenuous. Their resumes both individually and what they had accomplished together was as strong as almost anyone in football, but it started to work against them when the rubber met the road, as Carol Rosenblum's dogged desire to win championships set an incredibly high bar for them. They hadn't been to a title game since 1964, when they were blown out by Cleveland in Shula's second season as coach. And since then, his run in the postseason was marred by bizarre losses, if they even made it at all. The advent of the Super Bowl era in 1966 made things interesting, as even just winning an NFL championship game wasn't the ultimate goal anymore. Now, there was something new to play for, an even higher stakes game that even though only looked to be a formality against the allegedly weaker AFL, it added a whole new dynamic to the chase for an elusive ring for Shula and the Colts. They entered 1968 with a strong team, and they liked their chances to take it deep. But as the preseason was kicking into gear, things suddenly changed. Bill Curry, then in his second year with the team as their starting center, recalls the moment that it did.
1: Well, I would tell it this way. Uh, We're in Dallas to play the last exhibition game. And on the first play of the game, pretty sure it was the first play of the game. It was definitely the first series of the exhibition game. Um, Unitas throws an 80-yard touchdown to John Mackey, and we come off to the sideline. And I, I don't know if he said it to anybody else, but he came up to me. He said, "My arm feels funny. I did something to the right below my elbow." I said, "Well, you better get it checked." So he gets it checked, and he had torn the muscle in
2: half. Johnny Unitas, the face of the franchise for the past decade, and the player they saw as their meal ticket to a championship ring, suffered what would prove to be an essentially season-ending injury in a preseason game. Looking back on the injury, he recalled having some pain in that arm, and specifically around that elbow for years prior, but he never did anything about it. He also recalled that the NFL was using a special night ball in that game to experiment with how a ball would appear on TV in darker conditions, something he pointed to as a potential reason for why it happened. Age 35 is no spring chicken for a quarterback in 2021, and in the 1960s, a player at the stage of his career that he was in, plus a significant injury to his throwing arm, was going to be substantial. Johnny Yu didn't have any quit in him, and he did what he could to take the injury in stride, but some things aren't simple enough to just be able to rub some dirt on. Colt's legendary tight end John Mackey once said that being in the huddle with Unitas was like, quote, being in the huddle with God. It sounds pretty hyperbolic, but it can't be overstated what he meant to his teammates, that franchise, and the sport on a whole that proves that Mackie believed that to a T. Unfortunately, though, it was, of course, incorrect. No human being is immortal, and that injury was a sign that even though he walked like it on the gridiron, the Johnny Unitas was no exception to that. For a team that had hopes of taking it all the way, it appeared on the surface to be a devastating blow to the Colts. But they weren't just going to pack it in. In order to do what he could to stay competitive that season, Don Shula ID'd a player who he felt could come in and keep things afloat for the Colts. That player was Earl Morrill, a journeyman QB who had been the second overall pick of the 1956 NFL Draft out of Michigan State. A blue-collar guy, Earl bounced around the league for the next 10 years or so, starting his career with the 49ers before quickly being traded to the Pittsburgh Steelers. He spent a few years there before eventually being shipped off to the Detroit Lions, where he enjoyed some success and remained for six years between 1958 and 1964. That success was inconsistent and eventually got him traded, this time to the New York Giants in 1965. From there, he played some decent ball for a rebuilding team, but once again faded into the background as they brought in some better options. Up to that point, that had become the story of Morrill's career. A former top pick never was, who would show flashes of brilliance coming off the bench but could never find the consistency necessary to maintain a career as a starter. His son Matt summed him and his dilemma up fairly simply. He always wanted to play, always wanted to compete, he said about his father, but sometimes he had some pretty good people in front of him. That's a quote from a Philadelphia Inquirer article from 2019 that compared the plight of Nick Foles to moral throughout his career, if that helps provide any context. Matt goes on to state that he was often in the right place at the right time while being in the right place at the wrong time. An interesting turn of phrase. The article also says that over the first decade of his career, Earl had simultaneously endeared himself to his teammates with his scrappy play and easygoing attitude, whilst earning some interesting nicknames from fans and press for those same reasons. Those nicknames included Bullpen Boy, Rag Arm, and maybe the most dignified of the three, Mr. Inconsistent. It's safe to say that for Morrill, the last place he'd expect to be by 1968 was the starting quarterback for a championship contender. But when Unitas injured his arm in the preseason, that's exactly where he wound up as a result. On August 25th, just ahead of the season, Baltimore acquired him in a trade with the Giants. Bill Curry recalls the bizarre experience of playing center with someone in an NFL game who at first didn't even know the playbook.
1: We traded for Earl Morrill whose first week on the team was that next week. He did not know the snap count. He did not know the formations. He did not know the plays. And we lined up and started the league season against the 49ers in Baltimore with Tom Maddie leaning over to Earl saying it's out left, splank, uh,
2: split right, flank, 36 on two. And then Earl would repeat it and we would run it. It was to Earl's credit that it didn't take him long to catch on. And the Colts started the season 5-0, and scoring no less than 27 points in each of those games. Bill recalls what it was like to play with Earl, and compared his easygoing, even-keeled nature favorably with Johnny Unitas' more business-like approach.
1: To both of them, there was a uh,
2: preternatural
1: uh, calm. They were calm all the time, no matter what, both of them. The difference was that Earl was almost—he—he um, uh, he would turn into almost a humorous thing. I mean, he would—he would smile and say, "All right, everything's under control." You know, he just got ear holes. Some guy knocked his teeth out, and when it's third and sixteen, he'd say, "Okay, everything's fine." And he'd grin with blood running out of his mouth. <laughs> this is going to be a first down here. I mean us uh, was strictly business and Earl could somehow lighten the mood and get us to function and for either one of them, uh, and I would say this for Bart Starr as well uh, who really became my big brother in the Green Bay experience uh, we, would, we would have killed ourselves for them. We would have marched into hell for any one of them and there's just, there's something that There are no words to describe how that bond is established, but if you have it, you have a
2: huge competitive advantage. It's incredibly high praise from a well-respected guy like Bill to a guy like Morrill, who at one point had been Mr. Inconsistent, but was now suddenly the guiding hand of a winning football team. After their 5-0 start, the Colts dropped their first game of the season to the Cleveland Browns in a 20-30 home loss at Memorial Stadium. The Browns were a strong outfit that year as well, but if the Colts walked off of that field with any concerns about their ability to continue to win or compete with the best, it didn't show. The loss would prove to be the only stumbling block for them, as they closed out the regular season with an additional 8 wins in a row, to finish the year 13-1 and as the best team in the NFL. Earl Morrill, who would later in life write in his autobiography that he sometimes felt as if everyone had given up on him, threw for 26 touchdowns and 17 interceptions. That was good enough for an Associated Press NFL MVP award, a first-team All-Pro nod, and a trip to the Pro Bowl. The bullpen boy, who had been traded to the Colts on a whim ahead of the 68 season, had come in and saved the day. Only this time, it wasn't in mop-up duties for bad or middling franchises. This time, under the close eyes of Don Shula, who believed in him when nobody else did, Earl had a chance to go win it all. With the expansion the league had seen throughout the 60s, the NFL had started to adopt a more modern playoff bracket, somewhat similar to the ones we see them use today. As the top team of the NFL's Western Conference, the Colts hosted the second-best team within it, the Minnesota Vikings, in their first playoff game. They won it 24-14 and advanced to the NFL championship game. It was one that would feature a familiar opponent. In an interesting twist of fate, the Colts would have to travel to Cleveland to play the Browns, not only the only team that Baltimore lost to during the regular season that year, but also the exact team and stadium that they had embarrassed themselves against and in in the 1964 NFL championship game in Shula's second year as coach. It was a full circle game in that regard, and also because of the fact that the Browns were coached by one-time Colts target Blanton Collier. Who had also served as a mentor for Shula at various stages of his career. After plenty of hype and anticipation leading up to it all, the Colts finally made good in the NFL Championship after an almost decade-long drought, winning it 34 to nothing in a dominating performance.
1: The final score was Baltimore 34, Cleveland nothing, in a game that closely paralleled the championship contest of 1964. In both games. One team thoroughly dominated the other with a shutout. And once again, the teams were coached by a teacher and his former pupil. Don Shula served with Collier at Kentucky. Tom Matty, in scoring three touchdowns, tied an NFL championship game record, which the Browns' Gary Collins achieved in the 64 game. But today, the Colts did it with their incomparable defense, which shut out a team averaging 30 points per game. Finally... The Colts took revenge for the frustrating defeat of 64 and the earlier loss this season, while erasing the memory of last year that ended without reward. This year, the rewards may never end.
2: Bill Curry recalls the season up to that point in crystal clear detail, including Earl's MVP award and the NFL championship game, which a victory in was garnering buzz for the Colts as one of the all-time great football teams ever assembled. And
1: we won 15 games with Earl, and Earl became the most valuable player in the national football. League. That is the story of the year. We were 15-1 and one, going into the Super Bowl. We had lost one game, and that one was to Cleveland. We had just been to their stadium in the NFL championship and beat them 34 to nothing, And then we'd go down to Miami to finish the job and finish the season as one of the greatest teams of all time.
2: But as we know, the story didn't end after the NFL championship game. To many at the time, it seemed logical to conclude that it had. As even though the AFL had crowned a champion who the Colts would soon play, that game didn't have as much juice as the NFL champion Colts would be a clear and easy favorite. 1968 was the first year that Lamar Hunt's terminology of Super Bowl had caught on, a grand name for a grand game. That would bear itself out on January 12, 1969, to an extent that no one, not even Hunt who founded the AFL, could have ever predicted. Circa 1963, The footballing world of the greater new york area was solely focused on one team the giants that was for good reason as the early days of big blue were strong ones and good enough to lure in the allegiances of a good chunk of the population in the area that included multiple appearances in championship games in the late 1950s they were both times struck down by the baltimore colts in said games but it was nonetheless a boom time for them despite all of that when talks to form the afl in 1959 began one of the potential owners by the name of Harry Wisemer declared the area ready for another pro football team. When the league opened play in 1960, the team that he had dubbed the New York Titans, because Titans are bigger and stronger than Giants, according to his logic, took the field for the first time at the Polo Grounds in Manhattan, a venue that had been around since the late 19th century. Right off the bat, it's pretty clear there were some holes in Wisemer's strategy, which is why that it shouldn't come as any surprise that by 1962, he and the ball club had amassed enough debt that the AFL had to force him out and assume the costs. In order to save the franchise, an investor group headed up by television executive Sonny Worblin entered the mix as owners and saved the franchise from going under. Known as Mr. Showbiz in previous work circles, Werblin knew a thing or two about how to work the business and develop superstars. This would all prove to be useful in his ventures into the AFL, and he started by rebranding and relocating the team he had just inherited. They moved into the newly constructed Shea Stadium and renamed them the Jets, due to the new stadium's proximity to LaGuardia Airport. It was a first stroke of marketing brilliance by Warblin, who simultaneously shrugged off the clunky Titans moniker and found a new name that would, as he put it, reflect the more modern approach that he would be taking with the team. That included cutting ties with the Wisemer era, which was chaotic in many ways, including the former owner being unable to pay player wages and needing to take on funding from other AFL teams to stay afloat. Soon after taking over following the 62 season, Orblin fired head coach Bulldog Turner and was in the mix for somebody to come in at the position and provide some much-needed stability to the newly minted Jets. As luck would have it, the perfect candidate to do so had just become available. Weeb Eubank's time with the Baltimore Colts had certainly run its course, but even after his firing following the 1962 season, you'd have been hard-pressed to find someone that would tell you the man couldn't coach football anymore after just a few down seasons. Werblin definitely didn't subscribe to that, and ahead of the 1963 season, the first in which the team was to be known as the Jets, Weeb was hired to be the guy to lead them into a new era. Upon getting the job, Eubank recalled back to his first days in Baltimore when he impressed upon both Rosenblum and the media that he had a five-year plan in place, telling both Werblin and the New York press that he saw no reason why he couldn't do the same thing with his new team. It certainly wasn't going to be easy. In addition to being the clear second fiddle to the Giants, and literally not even in their league at that point, Weeb and the Jets had to play out the 1963 season, still in the polo grounds, before finally making the move to Shea Stadium in 64. Even when they got to Shea, they were simply tenants there of the New York Mets, who, out of fear that the turf would become damaged, didn't even allow the Jets to host their practices there. With little cash on hand and no prestige to their name quite yet, the first few years of Weeb's tenure saw the Jets host their practices at the fields of Rikers Island Prison Facility. For a man who had just a few years ago won NFL championships in front of millions of sets of eyes at Yankee Stadium, this certainly seemed to be a fall from grace for Eubank, but his trademark patience and good-natured, infectious positivity helped him and the young franchise to stay the course, even through the rough couple of years that were the beginning of his run with the team. Over his first four years in New York, Weeb actually failed to even post a winning record, finally making it to the 500 mark in 1966 at 6-6-2, six, six, a mark that almost doesn't even seem real these days. In 1967, Weeb and the Jets ascended to 8-5-1, and while they failed to qualify for the AFL postseason, Werblin's patience with Eubank finally appeared to be paying off. But that turnaround wasn't just due to Weed. He owed plenty of their success to a player they had brought in in the 1965 draft class, the first overall pick of that class to be exact. You know,
3: uh, these people here, your future coach and the owner, Mr. Werblin, have uh, referred to you as the greatest football player in college this year. Uh, you haven't even put on a jet uniform yet. Uh, you already feel a little bit of pressure? Well, uh, pressure just makes you go all the more. I kind of like pressure a little bit. Mr. Werblin, you're the man that's given all this money. We don't know the exact figures, but... Uh, you're not going to know it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, what how, how, how kind of an estimate? Or what? Uh, can
1: you tell us about it? Well, Bob, all I can say is that we think it's, it's a lot of money, but it's commensurate with uh, his
2: ability. When the Jets picked Joe Namath first overall in the 1965 AFL draft, they knew they would have to do some recruiting to get the quarterback out of Alabama to join them, as opposed to their NFL counterpart Cardinals. But thanks to Weeb's smarts and Warblin's marketing prowess, it didn't prove to be an especially tough sell for Namath, who wanted to be equal parts quarterback and celebrity.
1: He set the bar for what a superstar is. He was doing it back in the 60s and 70s when, you know, it wasn't heard of. We're talking about the height of
0: the turbulent 60s. Vietnam War was going on, and it was the Hawks versus the Doves and the anti-war movement. And not only was he a great player, but it was like he was one of us, a young, hip, kind of almost hippie with sideburns and long hair. He was such an exciting presence.
2: The voices you just heard are Hall of Fame cornerback Mel Blunt and acclaimed fantasy author George R.R. R. Martin, two guys who are very well-known for very different things. But the common thread between those two in that video, which ranks the NFL's all-time greatest characters, is in admiration for what Namath brought to the table in that regard. Weeb Eubank was the old guard football mind who was going to bring the Jets to relevance via nuts and bolts gridiron fundamentals and Namath was a spark plug who was going to elevate not only the AFL's profile in the eyes of the sporting world, but the entire sport of football on the eyes of America once again. A country that had yet to still fully adopt it as the mainstay sport we now know it to be. If Johnny Unitas had once personified the blue-collar, God-fearing man of the day in the 1950s, Namath entered football in the mid-60s with the potential to be the same thing for the long-haired, free-swinging, pot-smoking baby boomer generation, that was now a decade removed from the idyllic white picket fence era they were born into. Just a decade prior, Unitas and guys like him were happy just to make some living off of football, whether it meant having to have a job in the offseason or not. And it was largely thanks to all that had transpired since then, with the TV networks getting involved and the sport as a whole exploding in popularity, that a guy like Namath could make a living off his name alone before accomplishing much of anything on the field. Joe
1: Namath in Beauty Miss Pantyhose? Yes, we did it to prove that Beauty Mist can make any legs look like a
3: million dollars. Now, I don't wear pantyhose, but if Beauty Mist can make my legs look good, imagine what they'll do for yours.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's a pantyhose commercial from the 60s featuring Namath. Something I'd rather not dwell on too much other than to illustrate the point that a new era of sports superstar was dawning and Broadway Joe was maybe the most perfect example of it. But make no mistake about Namath. Beneath the pretty boy appearance and charming rural Pennsylvania draw that drew people in with ease, there was an intense, fiery competitor that quickly earned him respect among the ranks of the AFL.
3: He was tough, really tough. I mean,
2: he wouldn't succumb to anybody. I mean, he'd look him in the face, and these guys were out to get him. That was Namath's teammate, Jerry Philbin, a defensive end, who recalled earning respect for Namath after he stayed in a game in which he broke his jawbone against the Raiders, and in the aftermath of the game when he refused to discuss the injury with the media. After the game, they told me, you know, what happened to your face
3: or whatever, and I told him, uh, you know, I, I bit into a, a bad steak in the morning, a hard steak, and I hurt my damn... I wouldn't give any satisfaction to the opponents, I mean, under any circumstances.
2: Despite some difficulties with turnovers, Namath quickly proved himself to be the real deal at the position as a fleet-footed improviser who could move around with ease and make throws on a rope. Now a few years on the job, Weeb finally had his new Johnny Yu and Joe Willie Namath. The Jets' humdrum start under Eubank throughout the early 60s began to turn around in 1965 when Namath came onto the scene. That season, the young hotshot led them to a 5-8-1 record. And route to the AFL All-Star game as a rookie. They returned to the 500 mark in 66 at 6-6-2, a mark they again improved upon in 1967 with an 8-5-1 record. Despite their improvements under Namath between 65 and 67, they still had yet to qualify for the AFL playoffs under Weeb, But that was about to change. In 1968, the Jets took the AFL by storm, marching to an 11-3 record and a spot in the AFL championship game. It was there they would face off against Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders in a game that would prove the AFL to be the high-flying offensive entertainment product it was being marketed as. Down 23-20 in the fourth quarter, Namath hooked up with his favorite target, wide receiver Don Maynard, twice in what would prove to be a championship-winning drive, the first a deep shot to set them up for the score,
3: Namath dropping back to pass. He is looking, he is going to throw long for Don Maynard. And Maynard makes the pass down to the 10 and he is dumped out of bounds on the 8-yard line. A great
0: over the shoulder catch, Don Maynard against George Atkinson.
2: And the second to seal the deal. Namath looking for the end zone, throwing touchdown to Maynard. A recovered fumble on the next drive later and the ball game was over. The talented but erratic Namath had finally made good on all his promise and led the Jets to the top of the AFL. After being cast off from Baltimore six years prior, Weeb Eubank had added another pelt to his wall of substantial accomplishment. But he had another potential pelt now staring him in the face, the reward for possibly winning the third AFL-NFL matchup that he and his team now found themselves in after winning the league. To acquire said Pelt, Wiebe and the Jets would have to go through that very team that had sent him packing all those years ago. And if you believed what you read in the papers, the idea that the New York Jets had any chance of beating the Baltimore Colts in 1968 Super Bowl III wasn't just insane. It was impossible. You won't be surprised to hear that Joe Namath didn't quite see it that way. Chapter 5, Guarantees and Goodbyes. The stage had been set. The Orange Bowl in Miami, Florida is where the game would take place between the New York Jets and Baltimore Colts, in what was now widely being referred to as Super Bowl III. The young, upstart AFL squad and their ragtag but talented quarterback would face off against an NFL institution in the Colts, and the matchup, from many different standpoints, couldn't have been more perfect.
0: You know, it was, a, it was a huge game, obviously, because a New York team was involved in it, and the Jets really had the look and sheen of a, you know, a modern operation. You know, they seemed like they were something totally different than the stuff NFL. Like the look of their uniforms were brighter, and, you know, more exciting. And uh, Namath was, you know, he just he was uh, maybe one of the best athletes, if not the greatest pure athlete never came into the NFL. That gets forgotten today and people, you know, are are statistics obsessed now since the Oakland A's, you know, moneyball type of thing. But but in reality, Namath was an incredibly great athlete. He came into football damaged goods with you know bad knees when he get got there from Alabama. But he was he was an incredibly good player and the people in the NFL knew it. You know, like I, I in my research I found Paul Brown and Lombardi both praising namath before he had ever played anybody in the nfl you know like he, they looked at him you know they were asking what was he is he good enough to play in the nfl oh yeah they said he's you know, i uh i think paul brown was saying he's the best quarterback in football you know is he good enough to play in the nfl he's the best quarterback in pro football
2: namath really was proving to be one of a kind in that regard and the run-up to Super Bowl III was a weight unlike anyone had seen in the prior two installations of the game, or probably any sports championship game up to that point for that matter. In the opening weeks of January 1969, much of the football world and its press had descended upon Miami for the game, something we're used to these days, but was becoming a relatively new phenomenon in the world of sports at the time. A decade earlier, in 1958, the world watched a dramatic football championship game unfold before their eyes on their TV sets for the first time. Now, they tuned into their sets in the lead-up to the game to hear speculation on it, and to see Joe Namath's handsome face, which was a much more important aspect of the entire deal to much of America. The Jets' star quarterback had a wide-reaching appeal that was alluring to younger audiences, women, and other people who otherwise wouldn't have much interest in football for whatever reason but it wasn't just a smile and wave kind of week for Joe Willie, who had plenty to say on all manner of things. He had grown up an admirer of the Colts, and particularly their quarterback, John Unitas. But that week, he made it clear he wasn't especially impressed with Johnny Yu's understudy, the man who had just led the Colts to an NFL championship at quarterback.
3: I think uh, Monica throws better than Morrow.
2: Though brief, that's a pretty significant clip. In it, Joe Namath is holding court with some media members, telling them he believes Raiders quarterback, Daryl LaMonica, quote, throws better than Colts quarterback Earl Morrill, who he'd be facing off with in the Super Bowl. The former perennial backup would be leading the Colts into battle that week, with the now-healthy Unitas relegated to the bench. But Namath, not the least bit phased, went on to name several other AFL passers who he felt could show Morrill up in front of a swarm of media that ran with his comments like a bulldog with red meat. You know all the old heads in your life that dislike it when players celebrate after scoring or make a big play because they think it's disrespectful to the opponent and nothing like the players they grew up watching? Well, they're either lying or they missed Joe Namath's week leading up to the biggest game of his life in 1969. The comment about moral was just the tip of the iceberg.
3: I think we got a heck of a shot of winning. We beat anybody in the world and I think we're going to win next Sunday. I know we're going to win. I have that attitude. I feel that way and it's not... Uh... Overconfidence, thing as football sins.
2: Those are a few examples of Joe running his mouth about how he felt, holding nothing back in his convictions that the Jets were going to win. Not only was this type of bravado unheard of for the buttoned-up world of sports in the 60s, but they were especially jarring given the context and how much the rest of the world felt the game was going to shake out. In the previous two Super Bowls, the NFL's Green Bay Packers came out as resounding champions first over the Kansas City Chiefs, 35-10, and then over the Oakland Raiders, 33-14 in Super Bowl II. The Colts, even with their second quarterback in moral, had just steamrolled the NFL with only one loss on their schedule, and were favored to win the game by no less than 17 points at even the most conservative sports books, and by more than 20 at others. Namath spoke all week about his confidence in the Jets in the upcoming game, but it was one particular word that he uttered that drew the attention of seemingly the entire world. A word that's essentially become synonymous with Joe and his persona at this point.
3: I didn't realize I had even said it, first of all. You know, there was a wise guy in the back of the room that started this business, and I just told him what I felt.
2: You know, we're going to win the game, I guarantee you. At an award banquet at the Miami Touchdown Club, legend has it that Namath was up at the podium accepting an award, when in response to some trash talk from somebody sympathetic to Baltimore, he guaranteed victory for the Jets. One guy picked up on it, I believe, and that was Edwin Pope from the Miami Herald.
3: And I didn't know about it till the next day when we, Coach Eubank, said, we got to have a meeting. <laughs> and I apologized to Coach Eubank and everything and then turned it around, kind of. I said, but Coach, you know, it's your fault. We said, why what do you mean? I said, well, gee whiz, coach, you've given us all this confidence. You
2: know, you're telling us we're going to win. I mean, I believe you. We're going to win this game. While it wouldn't be unlike Weeb Eubank to have confidence in himself and his team, and it was beyond a shadow of a doubt that he wanted to make history against the franchise that had spurned him half a decade ago, he had enough tact to keep all of that stuff behind closed doors. But much to his chagrin, Super Bowl III was very quickly becoming the Namath show. Looking back on the experience, several Colts players claimed not to have been bothered by Namath's antics at all, including linebacker Mike Curtis.
3: We heard all that and we just knew that you know, there was a lot of show business going on. It, didn't, it wasn't anything we had to
2: prove. I, I mean, we just sort of laughed at it. Bill Curry confirmed as much to me, stating that while the players were aware both of what Joe had been saying and about all the NFL superiority narratives, that the Colts approached the game just like any of the other 13 that they had won that
1: year. You know They'd been told how they were the inferior league and they had no chance against us, and we didn't think about any of that. We were not overconfident. We, we played the same way
2: all year. After the Miami Herald picked up Namath's guarantee comment and put the true nadir of everything he had been saying out for the world to hear, it became game on for America, if not for the all-business Colts. Like Joe's old boss, Sonny Werblin, had always preached, Sports were show business, and he was putting on a damn good show of confidence, with or without the respect of the bookmakers. That show carried on until finally, mercifully, the game kicked off on January 12, 1969, in front of a sellout crowd of 75,000 people who packed out Miami's Orange Bowl to watch the spectacle take place once and for all.
1: And they could have sold 150,000 tickets for
3: this game. Tickets have never been more scarce than they were here in Miami.
2: Baltimore had been a football-crazed town for over a decade by that point, and their fans showed up in droves to see their team, which many had dubbed possibly the greatest of all time, come and finish the job. Footage of the crowd shows one fan in particular who brought a pair of signs, one that read, Hail the Colts, and the other reading, Namath is a hippie, in Baltimore's iconic royal blue. A fan of the old guard franchises that helped bring the professional game onto the national stage, he had every right to be cocky. He presumably grew up watching the stoic, crew-cut adorning Johnny Unitas, and had a pretty good idea in his head about what a star quarterback was supposed to look like. Simple, quiet, imposing, unassuming. All things Unitas were, and moral was a good stand-in for in that regard, and all the things that Joe Namath, for the most part at least, was not. The simple, classic, white-and-blue uniforms versus the modern, bright green that the Jets had adopted when Sonny Werblin rebranded them to capture the imaginations of a new generation of football fan. In every sense, this was old versus new, and to all the sensible, it was David versus Goliath. The prevailing belief was that New York was David in this case, but unlike the old parable, there would be no fate-defying slingshot to save him against Baltimore's Goliath. A 17-point spread should say it all, but as John Madden used to say, all of a sudden, a game breaks out. If Namath's boisterous cockiness cost the Jets anything to open the game, it didn't show. At least not in the way the Colts' quiet confidence going into the game actually wound up hurting them.
3: We didn't make any new adjustments, just play
2: our defense like we always played it, and um, that should be good enough. That's Colts defender Mike Curtis explaining that the defense entered the game without making any adjustments for New York's offense. As he explained earlier, the Colts weren't phased one way or another by Namath's guarantee and they certainly weren't going to let it change their approach in a game against an AFL team after they had just run roughshod over the Superior Conference.
3: They were able to dominate the teams they played in the NFL, so they're gonna play the same way they've been playing. Why would they change anything? For the Jets? They're not gonna
2: change anything. The Jets offense got the ball first, and while they didn't make any noise to open the game, they noticed something they had picked up on from studying film all week. The Colts defense, while obviously very strong, was easy to predict in terms of what they were going to do on a given play. Whether it was Weeb, one of his staff, or the Jets players, someone on New York had identified that the way the Colts lined up on defense indicated exactly what they were going to do on that play, pretty much without fail. Despite their scoreless opening drive, Namath and the Jets were able to confirm that early on in the game and respond with a unique strategy to counter it.
3: If they line up this way, you can expect the defense to do this. So we didn't call a lot of plays in the huddle. Looks like uh, Joe Namath, the the line of scrimmage, not go with any automatic. I gave a formation and said, check with me and we operated from the line of scrimmage for the most part. And here's Namath for his first pass on the run to Snell.
2: John Schmidt, the Jets center in the game, recalled that the Colts got visibly frustrated pretty quickly with Namath's trickery. It drove them crazy because they would shift to it, you know, and then we'd run away from their strength. And no matter what they did, he would call it the other way. Jets running back Matt Snell had a huge game and explained that along with Namath's game plan to call plays at the line based on what Baltimore's defense was doing, that Snell was a big part of the contest by design. The game plan was to discover some type of a running game. 19 option is my play.
0: It kept breaking.
3: <laughs> Snell again bursting through. And he made it. That
2: That touchdown by Snell came in the second quarter after a scoreless first. Morrill had thrown a tip ball interception in the end zone to open the proceedings, and the Jets made them pay by marching it down the field and pounding it in with Snell off the left side to go up 7 0. Baltimore's defense was frustrated and raring to make a play, but more patient than you'd maybe expect from him. Namath was ready to make them pay for their aggression as well.
3: If they're going to blitz, then we're going to throw. Here's a blitz on, he dumps it off to Mathis. We were doing a lot of blitzing, but Namath had that quick release. And he'd get rid of the ball to the receiver cut his route off. You're seeing Baltimore put the heavy blitz on Namath. And as soon as he reached that, he dumps the ball onto his back. Namath was cool back there, and he made it happen. He beat our blitz. And here it is again,
1: Namath reading that all-out flint. A great grab by Charles
2: The second voice you heard there was Don Shula, who after many years was happy to give Namath credit for his performance in Joe's A Football Life documentary, the source of much of this audio you're hearing. But in the heat of the moment and under pressure from Carol Rosenbloom to finally bring home a title, you can probably picture his razor-sharp jaw locked into a scowl on the sideline as the new kid on the block was dicing his supposed all-time defense up, left and right. Despite the bad start, though, having missed a few field goals and driving within striking distance as the half was about to end, Baltimore had to feel good that after a fluky start, they were ready to get into the game. If so, the feeling didn't last, because with two minutes left in the half, Morrill was again intercepted by the Jets, this time by former Colt Johnny Sample at the two-yard line. Basically the equivalent of a second end zone interception, it was another deflating moment, but again, nothing compared to the way the Colts ended the half. After getting the ball back from a New York punt, and with time expiring on the first half, they dialed up a flea flicker play, where running back Tom Matty ran off right before quickly pitching the ball back to Morrill. The play was designed to spring wide receiver Jimmy Orr open in the end zone, and by the testimony of pretty much everyone in the stadium, it did just that. But Morrill inexplicably attempted to dump the ball off to running back Jerry Hill, who let the ball go off his hands and into the grasp of jet safety Jim Hudson for Morrill's third interception as time expired on the first half. The post-game accounts of the play read like a Verbal's A Pruder film. Jimmy Orr stated that he was the primary receiver and that Morrill didn't see him, specifically stating that he was, quote, open from here to Tampa. Talking to the press after the game, Bill Curry corroborated that, stating, quote, I'm just a lineman, but I looked up and saw Jimmy open. I don't know what happened. One of the popular theories you'll find out there is that the play wasn't made because the Florida A&M band, which was set to play the halftime show, had already lined up behind the end zone, and that Earl had simply missed Orr in the shuffle. Whatever the case, the 17-point favorites shrugged into the locker room, down 7-0, but feeling like they had just squandered an opportunity to be up by a field goal at least. Their luck would not change in the second half. A fumble by Tom Maddy on the first play from scrimmage was yet another sign that it wouldn't be Baltimore's day. The Jets added two field goals to make it 13-0, but the only truly significant happening of the quarter was that Earl Morrill's 1968 Cinderella story officially came to a crushing end. The bullpen boy was sent back to the bench. An old reliable Johnny Unitas with a sore arm and a bruised ego was sent out by Shula near the end of the third quarter to see if he could use some of his old magic to salvage what was looking like a lost cause. After a simple three and out, the scoreboard turned to the fourth quarter, and Namath took the ball and the game into his own hands from that point on. He marched down and added another field goal to put their account at 16 points to the Colt 0, and things were beginning to look done and dusted something that felt all but confirmed after Unitas threw a wounded duck of an interception in the end zone for the Colts' fourth of the day. He wound up rallying on their next possession a bit, driving them down for a touchdown run by Jerry Hill to make the game 16-7. Baltimore promptly recovered the onside kick with about three minutes left in the game, maybe cause for some hope, but it wasn't to be. A four and out from the Jets' 19-yard line was the last hope the Colts had of generating some drama. Though he wasn't showing it to his teammates at the time, Namath was maybe a little bit anxious to get the clock down to triple zeros while his old hero was directing the other team's offense.
3: In the fourth quarter, went over to Coach Eubank. He wanted to know about a pass that we had in our arsenal, and I said, Coach, you know what? They hadn't
2: scored all day. I'd rather run the clock. Run the clock they did, and run it out on the team they were expected to be humiliated by. The final score was 16-7, but it might as well have read 100-0 for Baltimore sympathizers. The big bad Goliath Colts had been shot down by football's slingshot-wielding David, and all of a sudden, a new day was dawning on the sport in many different respects. The lasting image of the game is one you probably recognize. Joe Namath jogging off the field towards the locker room, pointing his finger towards the sky, indicating he was number one the same finger he had used to point out the tendencies along the Colts' defense and call his plays at the line. It rings as somewhat familiar to what Johnny Unitas did a decade prior against the Giants. Calling plays on the fly, rewriting the rules of the sport as he went along. But just as Unitas gave credit to his teammates in the locker room after the greatest game ever played in 1958, the up-to-that-point cocky Namath was quick to do the same for his teammates when addressing the media.
3: You've got to have confidence in your team, you've got to have confidence in yourself, and if you don't have that confidence, you can't play football. We all felt we could win, we won.
0: And I asked Joe specifically, Joe, do you feel like you're king of the hill?
3: Joe, you're king of the hill. No, no, we're king of the hill. We got the team, brother.
2: He was also a little fiery and willing to make quips about how little respect the Jets had gotten from the media and how his guarantee had ultimately paid off. Think what you will of Namath's persona and his bombastic nature, but he paid off on everything he had said he and the Jets were going to do. In the immediate aftermath of the game, people were stunned by what they felt was the biggest upset they had ever seen in any sport. And no matter your perspective, it was a massive moment for the game of football. This even held true for NFL Commissioner Pete Rosell. A CNN story that reflects on Super Bowl III tells of the moment when Rosell went into the locker room to present the Jets with the trophy detailing that one of his aides was bemoaning the fact that the NFL had lost to the inferior AFL. Roselle turned to the aide and stated, This is one of the greatest things to ever happen to pro football. Whether you're sympathetic to Baltimore's cause or not, he was quite clearly right, and it was especially prescient of him to recognize all of that in the moment when one of his crown jewel franchises had just been thoroughly humiliated. These days, though, you'll find your fair share of skeptics about just how one-sided that game actually was when breaking it down from an X's and O's point of view. Among them, Jack Gilden, who in his book details that the press coverage of the game that crowned the Colts before kickoff and the egregious double-digit point spreads were more a byproduct of marketing design than anything else.
0: Well, I mean, they're drafting from the same pool of players. You know, you had great Hall of Fame coaches in the AFL. You had great, you know, personnel people in the AFL. I mean, you know, what, what, what's the difference, really? Yes, they weren't on a par from day one, but they quickly got there. They had big TV contracts. They had the money. You know, they, they had everything. You know, they, if they overall from top to bottom weren't as good as the NFL, they're certainly, they were certainly very, very close. And, and you know, to think of them as being so far behind the Colts or any other NFL team, is, it was just absurd. I personally think, and I'm sure nobody on the Colts would agree, and nobody on maybe very few people would agree with me, but I think the Jets were a damn good football team. That you know we knew what he was doing. They were incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, balanced team. Great defense players. Great defensive coaches. Buddy Ryan was a defensive coach on the, on the '68 Jets. You know uh, that, that, that was a damn good team. Very well planned. Just a, you Know, was modeled after the 58 Colts. And uh, I think that they just, you know, they, I think that the Colts might have been better, you know, but, but, uh, but I don't think it's the big slam dunk that everybody thinks it is. I think they were pretty evenly matched teams. Probably the big difference was, um, was Namath versus Moral, you know, and Moral was much better player than history gives him credit for, but Namath was. You know, he was in the midst of a very special season, and he was a very special player, and and that was, you know, I think that, that was probably the biggest difference there.
2: He raises some fair points. Despite the naysayers he has these days because of poor statistics that are unfairly cited across eras, and maybe a more fair reputation as being somewhat of an airhead, Joe Namath really was a special player. Factoring that in versus the fact that there was NFL-level talent across the Jets' roster, plus a championship-caliber coaching staff headed up by Weeb Eubank, and including a young buddy Ryan, in hindsight, it's fairly easy to deduce that the 17-21 point lines in favor of Baltimore were a bit of a crock. Funny enough, Bill Curry, who was on the losing side for the Colts, doesn't seem to even give much thought to all the press surrounding it. He reflects on it as a game that the Colts more just beat themselves, rather than the Jets going out and winning it
1: we turned the ball over and we missed field goals. And uh, we had so many opportunities to score in the first half. And every time we failed, every time we turned the ball over, the Jets became a better team. And that's what happens. Um, and, and they won the game because they didn't turn it over because they, uh, they really functioned well. Namath had a good game. Matt Snell had a good game and, uh, we couldn't get the ball back from them in the second half. And, uh, so they earned the victory based on that. But Tom Maddy, our running back, still holds the Super Bowl record for all the Super Bowls for yards per carry. He averaged 11 yards a carry in that game. We blocked them. And Tom, had, Tom was a great back. But we turned the ball over. So if you get that many turnovers and miss short field goals against a good team, and especially a determined team, you know they'd been told how they were the inferior league and they had no chance against us. And we didn't think about any of that. We were not overconfident. We, we
2: played the same way all year. We just went out and turned the ball over again that day. That candid account tells you all you need to know about the Colts side of the story. They simply went about their business, but in this case, it didn't work out due to them getting in their own way in certain spots. It leaves you wondering about a lot of things. What if Earl Morrill hadn't had even just one of his several turnovers? What if Colts kicker Lou Michaels hadn't missed? What if Unitas hadn't stalled out or thrown his end-zone interception? Maybe, and certainly the most regrettably, what if Unitas hadn't gotten hurt in the preseason to begin with? At age 35 and after a decade of playing a brutal sport in an unrecognizably unforgivable era where he played a physical brand of football at quarterback, Johnny was no spring chicken anymore. Moral had filled in admirably for him. But perhaps, after all the squawking Namath had done about him, his poor play was the unfortunate difference for Baltimore. The fact is that all of the factors going against Baltimore were the reason why they lost, not just one player or play. But it's hard not to wonder what Unitas and his golden arm may have been able to do if healthy in 1968. He wasn't getting any younger, and Carol Rosenblum wasn't getting any happier with his head coach and Don Shula, who had once again embarrassed him on the biggest stage in the sport. If Unitas and Shula had an icy relationship that allowed them to coexist together as co-workers and not much more, it was hard to say that things were much better between Shula and Carroll by the late 1960s. As fate would have it, Super Bowl III would prove to be the wedge between the two that finally sunk that ship.
0: You know, Shula said to me, before Super Bowl III, it was all laughs and respect. He said, and after Super Bowl III, it was a whole other thing you know and and in reality Carroll never really spoke to him again after Super Bowl 3. He was pissed, he was embarrassed. They had already lost to the Cleveland Browns in 64 in the championship game and that was the biggest upset in football history before Super Bowl 3. So, you know, uh they they were uh they were at loggerheads. Right? and and Rosenbloom was in a tough spot because he was pissed, he was sick of Shula and learning he couldn't believe that he had blown these two huge opportunities and he embarrassed them. But at the same time, how do you fire a guy with the highest winning percentage in football? A guy that had averaged one loss per season the two previous seasons. How do you fire that guy? You know, so he was really, he was in a tough spot as owner because he, he was pissed at him. He was to barely, you know, have him in his sights. but And yet he was too good to let go.
2: It was a tough spot for Carroll indeed. Shula's record spoke for itself, even if his teams hadn't shown up in big games. And maybe an even bigger factor was Rosenblum's ego in the whole situation. He was a successful businessman who got to where he was by taking calculated risks and not accepting a loss, even when it was staring him in the face. Shula was by no means a loss, but he was brought to Baltimore to take them to even further heights than Weeb Bank had managed to. And at that point, six years in, he hadn't even gotten the Colts one championship, much less the two that Weeb had won. Weeb, That was the other thing about Super Bowl three. There isn't much you can find on the internet as to how both Eubank and Rosenbloom reacted to beating and losing to one another respectively in that game. But for a competitive SOB like Carroll, it had to have been another serious twist of the knife that the cherub-faced football savant he had gotten rid of built a scrap-heap team on Rikers Island over the course of a few short years, and then went on to embarrass his boy genius and Don Shula on the biggest stage in the sport with it. Regardless, it was all starting to become untenable for many of the parties involved. The next year, 1969, is a bit of a footnote in Colt's history when looking it over. We won't be spending too much time on it other than to discuss the few important points And important indeed they were. The first is that after a year on the bench and a failed effort at a comeback in the big game, Baltimore's favorite son Johnny Unitas returned to the lineup, starting 12 of 14 games for the Colts, while Earl Morrill settled into a backup role once again. Unitas threw for 2,342 yards, 12 touchdowns, and 20 interceptions. Not horrifically bad numbers for that era, but of course not up to his standard. Effectively a rehabilitation year for the aging superstar, the Colts rode his performance to a winning record of 8, 5, and 1, which while solid wasn't enough for a postseason berth. Some attributed their up-and-down year to what was then a nascent idea, the Super Bowl hangover. Whatever the case, Baltimore was on the outside looking in, and another year of Shula could be counted as squandered. For Shula, it was the year that his iron-clad grip on both the roster and his image that he projected to his players began to slip once and for all a 1970 sports illustrated article goes into detail of the psychological effects super bowl three had on the still young but now embattled coach when we started losing said defensive end bubba smith shula went crazy he had this thing about vince lombardi he wanted to be better than lombardi so he did a lot of screaming This ran counter to a cult's culture that had been long established by Carol Rosenblum up to that point. One of family, accountability, and above all, embracing the team above the individual. There were no individualists, Tom Maddy later told Sports Illustrated in an article that goes on to detail team leaders helping to run the show and the entire team getting to know one another over a beer on Friday nights. Everybody lived here in town and made appearances for free. We were part of the community, recalls Maddy. That was the tradition. It made us a team. Tight end John Mackey traces the loss, or at least part of the loss, of this tradition all directly back to the loss to the Jets. It started in the Super Bowl, he said. We panicked, and so did Chula. We couldn't do anything right. It carried over into the next season. He became more and more of a dictator. He started sending in most of the plays to John Unitas. To John Unitas. Unitas. Shula's old sparring partner, and now longtime coworker, co-worker. The two had ostensibly gotten past their differences to the point that they could work together, but it didn't seem to go beyond that at all. In the world of football, or really any professional environment, that should be enough. But it wasn't for those two. Not enough to win the championships they should have together, what with all of Shula's crazy good coaching acumen and Unitas' exceptional talents and trademark toughness. Mackey's disbelief that Shula would try and send in plays to Johnny is well-rooted in the idea that Unitas saw himself as the alpha dog of the two, something confirmed by Bill Curry's account that whenever Shula would try to do so, Unitas would either audible out of it or ignore it altogether. In a year where Shula was simultaneously losing his grip on the locker room whilst trying desperately to tighten it up further than it had ever been before, a strange dynamic came to be where the once wonderkind coach, was suddenly feeling like an old, out-of-touch, lame duck with one foot out the door. To miss the playoffs following a crushing Super Bowl loss wasn't going to help with that at all, and pretty soon, Rosenbloom was going to have to make a difficult decision about the future of the franchise. With the passing of that season passed another year, and a new decade was officially rung in. On January 11, 1970, the Kansas City Chiefs, led by head coach Hank Stram and quarterback Len Dawson, defeated the Minnesota Vikings 23-7 to bag yet another title for an original AFL team over an NFL team that was once again favored, this time by 13 points, a function of the fact that many sports writers still believed Super Bowl III to be a fluke at the time. It certainly wasn't, and in that two-year span, the AFL had more than proven itself as there to stay. Super Bowl III wasn't a fluke for Don Shula, though, who even after a year removed from it was still feeling the reverberations of the crushing loss. His relationship with Carol Rosenblum was essentially non existent, and his squabbles with Johnny Unitas had become the least of his worries as far as the quarterback was concerned. He was likely more worried about the fact that the aging superstar was finally starting to slow down. Despite all of this and all the uncertainty that was surrounding the future of the Baltimore Colts, Carol Rosenblum was ready to continue to move forward with Don Shula as the leader of his team. At least, that's what he would have had you believe after Shula made it clear through his own actions that he wasn't ready to do so. Four years earlier, in 1966, the AFL installed its first-ever expansion franchise, the Miami Dolphins, under the ownership of attorney Joe Robbie, a tobacco lobbyist from Minnesota who was seeking a move into what was becoming a glitzy world of sports ownership. He got that chance with the Dolphins, an expansion AFL team personified with flashy colors in a cool city that represented where football organizations were going, not where they'd been. It sounded great on paper, but the realities quickly set in, and the Dolphins only won 15 games over the first four years of Robbie's tenure from 66 through 69. After the 1969 season, they moved on from head coach George Wilson and were in the market to replace him with a big name that would begin to bring some real gravitas to the young franchise. Perhaps sensing that not all was well in Baltimore, Joe Robbie made his move. 40-year-old Don Shula felt like he had lived enough football life for three coaches by that point, and seeking to get out of the shadow of Rosenblum and the sour feelings that still lingered from Super Bowl III, he jumped at the opportunity. Robbie's offer was a $70,000 a year contract, including a 10% ownership stake in the Dolphins, and all the powers of general manager. For Shula, all of that, plus the opportunity to trade hardscrabble Baltimore for a place like South Beach at the turn of a new decade and escape the toxic environment he was in, felt like a no-brainer. Unfortunately for him, though, Carol Rosenblum wasn't going to let him go without a fight. Having finally settled on the fact that he wanted to see Shula stick around, Rosenblum was incensed at the idea that Shula would skip out from under him and the Colts and make a run for greener pastures, with the word on the street being that Carol was actually on vacation in the Far East when all of it went down. The rumors seem to indicate Joe Robbie did that on purpose, as Carol was notorious for his temper, and he wasn't shy about showing it to both Shula and Robbie, and the league at large in this case he went to Pete Rozelle with cries of tampering, claiming that with Shula under contract and the Dolphins not seeking permission for an interview, that Baltimore had been done wrong. Save forcing Shula to stick around for the length of his contract, which wasn't a tenable option, there wasn't much on the table for Rozelle to do other than discipline Miami retroactively. Robbie fought back with the claim that Shula was making the move to seek out, quote, employee betterment, citing the general manager title and ownership stake as proof that would be the case, and maybe also an indicator that they weren't just the deal sweeteners Robbie had initially presented them as. Ultimately, Roselle ruled in Rosenblum's favor to about the only extent that he could. Guilty on the tampering charges that Rosenblum had raised for not notifying the Colts or seeking permission to interview, Baltimore was awarded Miami's first-round pick in 1971. A somewhat paltry prize for a tough situation, and not one that would make the Colts feel a lot better, as regardless, they were left out in the cold without a head coach. After all the dust was settled, Rosenblum wasn't quick to forget. Several anecdotes from Jack Olson's 1970 article from Sports Illustrated stand out in that regard. At the NFL owners' meetings in Honolulu last spring, Rosenblum saw Shula hustling toward him with a smile and a ready hand. When Shula was a few feet away, Rosenblum did not about-face, and presented the back of his $300 suit. Not long afterward, the two were accidentally juxtaposed in the men's room of a New York hotel. Hi Carol, said Shula with a broad smile. Rosenblum turned coolly to a third party, issued a remark about Shula that must be rated GP, parental guidance advised, and stalked out. That's quite the third party account, and only corroborated by a quote from Rosenblum himself on the matter. It's like this, he says in the article's quote, I have not talked to Robbie or Shula since this happened. I will not talk to Robbie or Shula ever again. One stole something from me. The other allowed himself to be stolen. The article goes on to state a number of different stories of how Carroll played mind games with the Dolphins over the next year, including inviting a sports writer to a Colts Dolphins game who for whatever reason hadn't been granted access to a Dolphins contest earlier in the year all on Baltimore's dime. It says a lot about Carol Rosenblum, and how his dogged desire to succeed in everything both helped and hurt him at times throughout his life. So angered and affected he was by Shula's inability to win the big one, he considered cutting bait with him at many points throughout the years, to the point that Super Bowl III effectively ended their relationship. But on the flip side of it all, even when Shula decided he was going to leave on his own accord amidst all that, Carol still couldn't let he or Joe Robbie have the upper hand. The contradiction, of course, is that Carol's relentless drive is what made him tough to work for, at least when you weren't delivering for him. And in this case, it cost him his boy-wandering Shula, who bolted for a better situation after it all wore him down to the bone. But Shula isn't without blame either. That same article goes on to detail Shula's approach to training his players in the 1970 season, and it sounds brutal, just as he was in Baltimore like John Mackey and Bubba Smith attested to. And in the end, he appeared to have lost his collision of wills with Johnny Unitas, though it's fair to wonder, looking back, if either one of them really wound up as true winners from the ordeal. Their relationship began on rocky footing on the Colts' training grounds two decades prior, when Unitas and Raymond Berry embarrassed him in practice, and their issues were crystallized, not over the course of one game or season, but by the fact that they weren't able to truly capitalize on all their combined promise and win a championship together in the 60s. If Weeb Eubank was a kind ranch hand to Johnny Unitas' studly bucking Bronco that got the best out of him, Shula simply proved to be another thoroughbred that didn't know how to get through to his own kind. Unitas later said of Shula, Don made a lot of enemies among the players. He was a good coach, always a good coach but the way he handled some players left a lot of bad taste around here. I never let him bother me. I told him if he didn't like my job, put the other fellow in. But I guess a player who's uptight all the time, probably he couldn't get his job done. The two were a combined tip of the spear, forged by Carol Rosenblum to do amazing things together. But unfortunately, egos and many other factors got in the way. To Shula's own credit, he's very candid, or at least became so later in life, about the fact that the Super Bowl III loss wound up being the deciding factor in his choice to leave Charm City. When you look back on your life and the directions it takes and the decisions that are made, it's amazing how things unfold, he said. After Super Bowl III, my relationship with Rosenblum was not very pleasant. I love Baltimore. The people, the fans, and everything that Colts football stood for. But Rosenblum's New York buddies never let him forget the Super Bowl, and he never let me forget it. If we had won that game and continued to win, I certainly wouldn't have gone. I'd still be in Baltimore eating crab cakes. Jack Gilden, one of the great Shula historians out there, seems to think that he'd have stuck around with a few different breaks as well. There's no doubt about it.
0: First of all, he loved Baltimore. And and secondly, he fit it like a, like a glove. I mean, his personality, he was, you know, he was similar to Unitas in that way. He was very much a blue-collar guy from the you know, from the Rust Belt. And uh, the the Baltimore fans loved Shula. Shula loved Baltimore. His dog was named Colt, you know, at the time that he left for Miami. The the, uh, Baltimore fans, you know, pitched in and had an artist, you know, paint a beautiful portrait of Shula that they gave him when he came back with his first game with Miami. I mean, there was a lot of affection between Baltimore and Shula. He was kinda of like to Baltimore what Bill Calher became with the with the Steelers. So there's no doubt that um that uh Shula would have stayed here. Rosenblum said just before Super Bowl three that Shula would be the last coach he would ever hire. You know, I guess he was referring to the fact that Shula was so young and so talented. Shula had the highest winning percentage of any coach in football. You know, it was uh it, they just crushed the Browns for the NFL championship and shut them out. I mean, I, I think that they, that absolutely he would have, um, he would have been, he would have stayed in Baltimore and not only would he have stayed, but I, I believe the Colts would have stayed too. It it just never would have gone off the rails like that.
2: Bill Curry, a veteran of the team at the time, reflects incredibly fondly on the Shula era and remembers being shocked and saddened by its ending.
1: I was crushed. I mean, he was my coach. Um. And I loved him. I love him to this day. And I was able to reach David, his oldest son after coach. I wrote him letters and through the years to remind him of what he means to me. Um, and, uh, I, I was able to email David. I couldn't find Mike. I, I couldn't track him down, but, um, David responded, uh, favorably that, um, that coach and I did have a, a very good relationship, but, um, I, I couldn't believe that, uh, Mr. Rosenblum did that, uh, that I sort of assumed that it was a mutual parting of the ways, but, but I also love Mr. Rosenblum who was equally good to me, uh, as, as Shula, uh,
2: so uh, it, it, was, it was a very confusing, difficult time. Despite Don Shula's hard edge and lack of championship success to show for it, you can tell there was some admiration for him among certain players. It wasn't shared by all of them, and especially not Unitas and Rosenblum. But over the course of the 60s, he had truly begun to make his mark. Shula would go on to have an all-time great coaching career leaving many to wonder about the what-ifs had a few things broken differently for him in Baltimore. Regardless, the man Carroll had taken a chance on was now gone, and without a head coach in place, an aging, ailing quarterback as their starter, and more questions than answers popping up as a result of it all, the Baltimore Colts entered the 1970s in a state of strange uncertainty that they had maybe never felt in their history before. As luck, or maybe bad luck, would have it, Things were about to get a whole lot stranger.